0: Hey, .NET Rocks fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Walline, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Juval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. Rocks episode 949 with guest Tatham Adi. Recorded live Friday,
1: January 31st, 2014.
2: This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at com. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and
1: recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at
0: GesturePak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Well, thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and, uh, well, what can I say? Um, I'm very happy to be home. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Howdy. Howdy, sir. All is well. All is well. Enough yeah. chit-chat. Let's roll the music. Okay, hit it. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: like a quick one, too. Nothing wrong with that. Somebody was saying the other day, I need to have a shirt made that says, so what do you got for me, buddy? Yeah. Or is it, somebody? what do you got?
0: Well... Oh, you uh, got something good.
1: I know that tone.
0: Yeah, you know Tatham's here, and we're talking about graph databases. And I yeah. thought I'm going to find something completely opposite and different from that because I I don't know anything about it. So <laughs> <laughs> opposite of a graph database. Is, well, not opposite, but just completely different. Okay. Yeah. So I found something cool that I have not had not seen before, have not used, but um, I have heard people say that they like it. Mm. And I think you're going to like it. This is an open-source C-sharp framework designed for developers and researchers in the fields of computer vision and artificial intelligence, image processing, neural networks, genetic algorithms, fuzzy logic, machine learning, robotics, and the like. Oh, and by the way, it'll read and write MPEG-4 files as well. Uh, aforge.net. So go to aforge.net dot com. Aforge.net dot com. Huh? They have other things there, but if you click on the Aforge.net framework or just slash framework, this is a again an open source project. It's all C sharp. You can uh, download it yourself. And uh, there's an imaging library for image processing routines. There's computer vision to sort of Figure out what the computer is seeing and understand, you know, images. The video processing library allows you to, again, and and this was where it started for me because I just wanted a simple way to with the connect. Right? You would think the connect, when it gives you that stream of color video data, to be able to save that to a video file that's useful, you know, like a an MPEG four or something like that. You'd think that would be I don't know, something that would be simple to do in 2014. Yeah. Mm, well, no. I mean, there's Direct Show, which is great. And then there's wrappers for that in C sharp. And there's a lot of hoopty hoo. Interesting. So, you and know, it's a free a, download
1: too. They have a free. donate button. But yep.
0: other than that, it's like, go get it. It uses FFmpeg, um, which is a free MPEG library. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, I was looking out there. There are companies that have encoding services that charge buku dollars for you to stream your bitmaps to them and they will encode them and compress them and turn them into mpeg uh, files you know like big big money for that kind of stuff and here's just a you know yeah we got that nice but lots of other very cool things in here what a great find neural networks computation library Hello, that's very cool. There's a evolution programming library, aforge.genetic. Very wow. cool stuff. So if you're a, you know, a science wonk or just interested in very cool things, go check it out, aforgenet.com. Yeah, stuff to experiment with. Lots of fun. Can't wait to get my hands dirty. There. Yeah, no kidding. Great find. <laughs> yeah. I'll
1: let you know what happens. So who's talking to us, Richard? I uh, grabbed a comment off of show 922, which is the one we did with Mark Greenway talking about MongoDB on Azure, which I thought was, you know, it was a great show. You know, it's just another no-sequel conversation and talking that particular space. Uh, and if you recall the particular show we dug into that, you know, we've got a few no-sequel shows. This is going to be another one and mm-hmm. just, you know, a way to work it with everything else. And uh, Michael Halhead said... Uh, a penny dropped a while ago for the whole NoSQL movement. The penny was that this isn't really new, that there were other database technologies back in the 70s. Relational databases just became dominant, which is absolutely true. Mm. The process industries, that's the petrochemical industry, mine, mineral processing, power generation, so forth, have been using NoSQL databases for the past 30, 40 years. Yes, they have. They're called text files. <laughs> but they're also called Process Historian, right? Because they're really logs, right? They are never modified, always added to mm. uh, records of exactly what you've done. Because when you think about the process industries, like those histories are really important. Sure. Uh, but Michael goes on to say, uh, unlike the current crop of NoSQL databases, Process Historian is definitely not a free open source product. They have price tags that make Oracle look cheap. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. knowing that Oracle's pricing model is generally based on how much money you got. Mm -hmm. On previous shows, you have debated using a relational database like Microsoft SQL Server in conjunction with a NoSQL data store. This is exactly what the process industries do. The historian, that is the process historian, collects high-speed data, which is hundreds of thousands of values per second, and stores this data. They also aggregate it for the use of more traditional relationship tools like SSRS and, and OLAP cubes and so on. The company I use is OSIsoft. I think it might be worth having them on the show. Uh, they're live in a whole different world of software and hardware that most developers are oblivious to the process control world, mm-hmm. which is a world I've done some work in over the years. And you're right. Well, I have it is too. a totally different realm. Yep. I'm sure other developers would find it interesting is how braking systems on trains they use work or how the electricity actually gets to their
0: development machines. Didn't we talk about that? I yeah, think about a little that. bit, but you're, he's right though. I mean, we, this is an area of software development that we typically ignore. Yeah. It's, on it's the show. a
1: somewhat specialized area. Yeah. And he also goes on to say on a related topic it would be interesting to do a geek out on home automation.
0: Hey, we have No, we haven't done a geek out per se, but we did talk to a few people We about, have done a few home automation shows. We've done a couple home automation years. shows, but it was before we were calling them geek outs, really. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I that makes me think I should go back and tag those shows as yeah, geek outs too. Yeah. Probably right. It's a good point. And maybe it is time to revisit home automation again. There's Absolutely. a bunch of new technologies. Maybe talk about the Nest and things like that. Well,
0: and we did the one with um, Andrew Duthie. Yeah. That was a geek out show. Yeah. And yeah. There was the, a lot with of the.
1: .net Gadgeteer stuff. And I just got a PR piece from Samsung saying now you can start your dishwasher from your iPhone. Hello. I don't know if that's a good thing, but okay. I like it. Yeah. I like it. That's interesting. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, we're on board. I'm certainly going to talk some more. No sequel with uh, with Tatum here. Dishwasher. I want rock. him to
0: start my coffee machine. That's what I want. That's what
1: you really want. Yeah, Let's focus
0: on what's important. I'm washing. Di- I can turn the butt Press the button on the dishwasher. I I want to be in bed and push the button on my coffee machine. That's what I want. <laughs> oh, uh, so come I, on, Samsung. Are you done? I'm done. Finally. <laughs> sure. No, not really. Let me <laughs> tell you a little bit more about my coffee machine. Let me have it. No, I'm, just <laughs> I'm here ahead.
1: for you, Matt. You tell me. <laughs> go ahead. <sighs> Michael, <laughs> thanks for your comment. .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows 8, Windows Phone 7 and 8, iOS and Android. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com.
0: Fact, my wife was telling me this morning. I want my coffee button pressing robot. Where? When are you going to make it for me, Carl? <laughs>
1: now, now. She wants her. She She wants a, a coffee making drone. That's she what does. she wants. She
0: wants a robot to bring her coffee in bed. That's it. It's a good <laughs> That's idea. It. When are you going to invent it, Mister Genius? Get to work.
1: You want a parrot drone that f- makes the coffee in the kitchen and flies it upstairs. Oh, I don't know, to her.
0: flying might be a little dangerous, but uh flying certainly. with hot coffee? What could go wrong? Yeah, certainly. <laughs> we could do a geek out called Bad Ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Famous last words. Hey, watch this. Yeah. All right. Well, before we go any further, let me tell you that PluralSight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release still over 40 new courses a month and probably more by now and offer a free 10-day trial giving you 200 minutes of access. With a wide range of developer topics including iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything you can think of on the Microsoft stack. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just $29 a month. Which brings us to the reason we're here. Tatham Adi. Tatham is uh, based all the way down in Sydney, Australia. He's a principal consultant with Redify. This means he helps customers solve all kinds of business problems, sometimes with code. His technical focus is around the web and the exploding number of available technologies that that entails. Welcome, Tatham. Thanks, guys. Graph
2: databases. Yeah, they're a uh, whole new topic.
1: Yeah. Should we set the landscape on all these different NoSQL data stores? Do you work with other ones as well?
2: Yeah. So I the, well, I guess the main thing about NoSQL is, first of all, the movement of it's not about just picking one. It's about intelligently thinking about what's the data we've got, what do we want to do with it, and what do we want to store it in? So graph yeah. databases are well and truly just one store that I would use. Right.
0: Yeah. I, I'm, when you he, When I hear the word graph database, I think, ah, yeah, Excel spreadsheet. That's, that's <laughs> what people have been using, the, you know, throughout the ages for a graph spreadsheet. The, that's a graph. the
2: charts, the charts, yeah, not yeah. graphs. Step it's one, a graph, get the language right.
0: database. All right, well, whatever. So tell us what it is.
2: Uh, so a graph database is about storing the connections between something. Is really what a graph is. So graph theory is something that Euler came up with, and it's kind of a cool little story to start with. Um, it was in Prussia, and there's this seven bridges problem. So, there's seven bridges that cross a number of rivers. And uh, he wanted to find a way to cross each of those bridges exactly once, but get across all of them, right? And sure. he was looking at this big sort of complex sort of map and trying to work out all these different paths and things. And, and then he started to realize that it wasn't so much about where all those bridges exactly were and, and what they sat between and the size and all these other features of the bridges. It was about just what they connected. So, you end up with nodes, which is the chunks of land, and the bridges being connections between it. And then graph theory is about how he then able to go and analyze that. If we think mm-hmm. about that in a simpler data sense, uh, or a different example, it might be something like um, we've got movies and actors and things like that. So, we might have Tom Hanks, and we'll say he acted in Cloud Atlas. Now, Cloud Atlas is a movie, and that'll be a node in our database. It has some properties and stuff like that. And then Tom Hanks will be another node as an actor. And then we can put a relationship between them. Now, we don't go and have to create a, a table or like a fixed structure or explore it in ways like that where we put all these kind of concrete um, grouping formats around things. We can just say we've got one of these and we've got one of these and there's a relationship. And that gives us a whole bunch of opportunities about how we can go and query data in, in different ways.
0: Yeah. Wow, that's great. And, and and you say that the setup is really simple. You would just say, this is what this is and how it relates to that thing. And you don't have to really sort of define all the metadata ahead of time.
2: Yeah. So, um, well, in Neo4j being an implementation of a graph database and the sort of the one that seems to be really gaining traction, then it's quite mm-hmm. lightweight in terms of you have some key value pairs and, and uh, a lightweight schema. And we can talk more about that in a bit. But the... The first thing that's really nice about graphs is that they fit the real world very well. Um, And if you think about how we often go and do modeling, like we'll, we'll have some sort of new problem space that we encounter and we all stroll over to a whiteboard and and uh, we start drawing up things and we'd, we'd say, okay, yep, we've got Tom Hanks here and we've got Hugo Weaving and we've got Cloud Atlas and The Matrix. And we just sort of write those words up on the board. And then we might draw a line from Tom Hanks to Cloud Atlas and say, acted in. And then we'll draw a line from Hugo Weaving down to both Cloud Atlas and The Matrix and say, oh, he acted in them. And then we can put Lana Wachowski up and say, directed these two and, and that sort of stuff. And, and that's really easy modeling. And that's what we might do on a whiteboard. But then you take that into a graph database and, well, that's our graph structure. We don't then go and translate that and say, okay, now where are we going to put these like different foreign keys in, and and sure. where, where are we going to put an index on this, guys, and you know all that right. sort of stuff? It's just, well, there's our model. Just put it in the data store.
0: And I guess those those real relationships are complex, and uh, when they get when they when you know they get more than two or three or four amongst a small number, you know, or even a great number, they can get very overwhelming.
2: Sure, all of a sudden you start somewhere uh logical and you're trying to query all the way over somewhere else. Um, yeah. One of the things that comes up that um is kind of I guess a, a good separation between why would we use something like um a document DB or um yeah, even, that was my next question. Right. Is uh it, it's about that the being able to walk those relationships. Graph database is really about traversals. So, if we think about a a different domain, think about um, we've got customers and they have orders and orders contain line items for products, right? Now, in a a relational world or even a document DBs or or something like that, we'd go and have our customer as an entry and then we'd have orders as an entry and then we have our product items. And we need to go and introduce these kind of foreign keys to be able to relate between them. So... We have an order A, B, C, D, and then in it, it has two line items for products one, two, three, and product four, five, six. Now, if we start from the customer, that's pretty easy querying because we can say, okay, this customer, what orders do they have? And then, okay, this order, what line items did it have on it and what products were they? So querying in one direction might be easy based on the way we've set up our foreign keys. But then you want to go the other way and say, okay, tell me everyone who bought a Snickers bar. And to do that, we need to go and say, okay, we need to find a Snickers bar. All right, it's product 456. Okay, go and look through every order for anybody who bought a 456 and find the orders. Now, maybe we can speed that up with an index, but that's kind of just adding another layer, right? So, now we've found all the orders that have a 456 in it. Okay, now we've got order ABCD. All right, now which customer had order ABCD? Okay, spin through the customers and look for who had ABCD. And It's quite an expensive operation going and doing these sorts of joins to go and find information. And then you throw something else in the works, and you're like, okay, we want to know everybody who bought a Snickers bar and a vanilla ice cream at the same time, in the same order, or maybe across different orders, right? And all of a sudden, you see these queries start to explode.
0: All of a sudden, you see, please wait. Yeah, exactly. Please wait.
2: Whereas in a graph world, those those traversals and those relationships are the first-class citizen of the data set, basically, uh, and how things are stored in, on disk and, and all of the associated performance. So that becomes an incredibly cheap operation. So, instead of saying, okay, we have 50,000 products and we have 5 million orders in our database and like 4 million customers and and those being big numbers, well, that doesn't really matter because Alice bought two or she had two orders with us and in one of those orders, she bought some vanilla ice cream and a Snickers bar. So, really, we're talking about like five nodes, which is a really tiny amount of data that's then very closely connected and very quick and easy to traverse.
0: it sounds to me like there's some very functional asynchronous stuff going on in the background. Am I right?
2: Uh, more about um, intelligent ways to go and store this information uh, because it's. It, it, you're after very, very quick response times here, right? Um, So Mm -hmm. on disk, it's stored in things like doubly linked lists and uh, all the relationships on node and and then actually going and looking up the data is then kind of a second operation. It's like, okay, so Mm -hmm. I I found this node is connected to this one. Sorry, what were the properties on it? Um, Mm -hmm. And going and pulling that out in the store.
0: Okay.
1: It is interesting. You know, you don't think about not you. I always thought about relational databases being the fast query thing. You know that when you have a bunch of different bits of data and you want to assemble them, that's what relational databases are actually good at. That the transactional part is what the relational database sucked at, and that graph databases and other NoSQL stores were good at write fast, but as soon as you get into any complexity in reading, it slows down.
2: Right, um, because we we start to see those problems of. Okay, all of our customers are there. If we want to go through and, I don't know, calculate the average age of a customer, if we have that information, then that's excellent right. because we have all of our customers in one place, in a table, and we can, yes. we can fly through it and we can calculate that in multiple threads and cores and all that sort of stuff. And wonderful, we get a number. But how often do you do a bulk operation on all of your customers? Very rarely. Right. You want to go to a customer. When are you, you going to do aggregate
1: data analysis as opposed to transactional work? Right. and they, I mean, they're two different roles. I think they're both important. And this gets back to some of the other NoSQL shows we've done where it's like, hey, do your transactional work in the NoSQL side, but then decompose it offline into the relational store so that when you do need to do aggregate work, it's there in a tool that's easy to use.
2: Right. And, and that's so kind of like what the- we do with business intelligence or reporting sometimes is we take that even further and we'll go and put it into a cube to run analysis.
0: Mm-hmm. On. That's just my next question. Is this w- Would this uh, be a great alternative to using a cube?
2: Um, one of the things with graphs is you do need to apply a bit more thought to how you're going to structure things. So, because you want to be able to aim for cheap traversals, something like if I was building I um, I don't know a database of podcasts where some guys went and wrote or uh, recorded lots and lots of podcasts and they had like a thousand. Who would of do them. that? I don't know who would be crazy to do that, <laughs> but all of a sudden we've got a thousand of them, and, and we want to go and sort them by date or something like that. Now. Uh, If I wanted to say, okay, get me all the podcasts from 2010. Now, in a a Neo4j world, at least, but typically a graph world, we don't have an easy way to do that. We can find all the podcasts because they'll be related in some way or whatever. But to then go through and say, find the ones from 2010, we've got to skim through them all and basically do a seek, right? Now, that's going to be expensive. In a relational world, we'd go and have an index on top of that. But then we have to maintain all these different indexes. Uh, and keep all them up to date in terms of you as you write something in, all of a sudden you've got to update all these indexes and shuffle them around. So we don't really want to do that. So what we might need to do is go and say, okay, well, we actually need nodes in our graph that represent time and years. So we have a 2010 node, right? And then from that 2010 node, ah. we would go and relate the podcasts to that node. So we say recorded in and we'll point to 2010. So on the, the actual podcast, we might record exactly when it was recorded, the exact date and time as a property. But we'd go and put a relationship to the 2010 node. So now that becomes a really cheap traversal. When I want to find all the podcasts in 2010, I find the 2010 node, which there can't be that many of them, right? Uh, and then off that node, I then just trace, the, follow the relationships to say, okay, give me all the podcasts that are attached to it. So that becomes a really you know, cheap operation.
0: Seems to me that's that's how your brain sort of organizes files on a hard drive as well. You know, if you if you had uh, all those things organized and you wanted to access them quickly you would you know group them by the way that you search them uh the the most right you know how to how what's the easiest way for me to find something well it's by date
2: but in that model there that's
0: how i lay out the model
2: Yeah. But in that model there, you're having to make a decision, right? Because you have a folder structure that's a hierarchy that you put stuff in. So, you used to sort by date, but now you expand into a global empire and you've got millions of podcasts and you need to be able Mm -hmm. to find them by a particular author. What do you do Mm -hmm. now? Go and resort all your folders into authors? But then what happens when you want all of the podcasts in 2010 from that author? Right? All of a sudden, right. you've now got these sort of two entry points. And, and this is where we get into this problem of uh, sort of what's the, the root of your query and, and not wanting to go and have to restructure your data every time you start to think of a different problem. What we can do in a graph world is, okay, we've got all of our podcasts as nodes, and then we've put some sort of time graph in there. So we might have uh, years that point to month nodes and then podcasts are pointed to them or something, right? Depending on, mm-hmm. I guess, how dense our data is, how much we have per month or year. Um, But then we go and link that to authors. So now when somebody says, give me all of the podcasts by this author in 2010, finding the author is really simple and finding the year nodes very simple. And then we just say, okay, well, what are the nodes that sit in the middle that are related to both of these? And that becomes a really quick, cheap operation as well. Mm -hmm. And we can go and add some of these different entry points in quite easily. Um, So it even works with things like uh, GIS modeling. You can translate uh, geodetic data into a graph you kind of you start with well there's the planet and then within that we have hemispheres and you know within that we sort of break it down uh, kind of like yeah. your, your old school grid references and, and things like that that we'd use so that can then sure. becomes a really quick way to go and say okay find me all the things that are in this area because you just sort mm. of start at the top like you would think as a human yep. you'd start at the globe and you just sort of zoom in you're like yeah here down to that one yep there it is right there.
0: Start big and zoom in yeah
2: and, and, and all the other stuff around the outside you just don't care about it's not in the context of your query
0: So these are good, uh, uh, good examples. Give me um, something that you've implemented with a graph database.
2: So where I actually uh, came across Neo4j, and well, really graph databases, and went, "Oh, these are interesting." Was um, quite an interesting project we've had running for about I don't know three years. Um, So legitimate customer project and runs in production and all that, and it's a social care um, guided practice system. So we're dealing with very complex socio issues um, in the sense of, you know, mummy's OD'd on drugs and daddy's in jail and the kids need to go into foster care or respite care, things like that, complex problems. Um, And tracking all of those sort of cases as they go through and making sure people don't slip through the cracks and get all of the right support they need is a very complex problem as well. But some of the stuff that happens in these sorts of systems is that, first of all, we have very low quality data. You might have a social worker doing some form of outreach work who they go down to the skate park and and sort of try to connect with a group of people. And it might take six months until they know anything more about somebody than that's the kid with the blue beanie. But as you sort of go and discover these data points, they'll want to relate things up and say, okay, yeah, that's the kid with the blue beanie. But I know that he hangs out with this person who's somebody that we we work with, all right? Hmm. Uh, And uh, they're a client of the agency or things like that. And then you start to also get into family scenarios, which become very complex. You're not actually sure who the parents are. Um, Surprisingly complex question to answer sometimes. Don't even know how old some people are. But we start to get the information that we do have and and make links between that, where we go, okay, well, we think this person's related, or we know this person lives in this house. So then when we're looking at somebody in the system, we're able to go, okay, these are the other people who are sort of uh, sitting around the periphery of this person who might be relevant to this case.
0: Right. You can make make links, and it sounds like you have these links that are sort of vague. You have these sort of vague links that there's some link between this person and that person. We're not quite sure what it is.
2: And over time, we'll qualify that. So, we'll sort of have, okay, we know that these two people live in the same house, or or maybe they've actually, they both walked into uh, a center together at the same time asking for help. So, hmm. we've got a link there, right? So, we can start to pull that information in and then at some point we'll, hit, we'll be able to qualify that and say, yep, okay, we've, we've seen a birth certificate. We know that they're related or, or something like that. Um, hmm. But it also gets into then we can do things like, uh, and we haven't got all of this happening um, in the sense of a full production system of the, some of the legal complexities and process complexities and things like that. But the, the types of scenarios that we can enable technically uh, and which we're really starting to get some value from, is things like being able to look at a record and say, hey, we don't know who this person's doctor is, but there's this doctor over here that seems to be fairly closely related because he is the doctor for all these other people and, and they're kind of in this social network that we've got here. Uh, is that mm. the doctor? Yes or no? Uh, we can pull that sort of stuff up. We can also do things like reasonably complex permissions, Um which does relate actually to another system I worked on that was reasonably similar, where permissions in this type of environment get very complex. You can't just say, you're a caseworker, you can see all the cases, right? Uh, Because that's an incredible amount of personal information, uh, uh, very personal information about lots of people. But you can't just also then go to the other end and say, okay, as a caseworker, you can see the cases that you're working on because then that's where people slip through the cracks and um, they, they don't get service because they're, they're not actually ex- perfectly linked into the case, so the caseworker can't see them, and you have children literally die, right? This is what drives a lot of these systems. Um, so you need some middle ground there. So you can do some intelligent permissions where you can say things like, okay, this caseworker is assigned to this case. Show them all of the records that are within three degrees of that. That's their permission set. So, you can set these kind of fuzzier boundaries where they don't see everything, but they can see what's around what they're working on. Now, imagine trying to do that in a a relational world or something like that. Imagine if you got the requirement that said, okay, caseworkers need to be able to see all client records that are within three degrees of the cases they're working on. You just start crying in the corner. Sure. Absolutely. Right to do that and, and how to do that in a performant way, right? So, um, so I think that's a, a pretty cool type of scenario. That's a legitimate um, business problem, and it's a great way to solve it. That type of permission.
0: Well, that is. It's a direct sort of. It's a direct map of the relationships. You know, the relationship story is that in real life. I mean, it's a one-to-one data map, really.
2: Yeah. And, and that's a convenient model in that we talk about relationships in the real world and then we have relationships right. in a graph database. But one other example, which I quite like was, um, and this isn't what I worked on, but, uh, it's a, a published example is, um, there was a courier company in Europe, uh, or like a post company. I can't remember exactly what country it was. And they were coming into Christmas a couple of years ago and, they have a fairly complex routing process trying to route parcels from anywhere in the country to anywhere in the country. Uh, and, but it's also quite dynamic because you'll have, okay, this truck goes from this postage center to that postage center at this time of day. Oh, uh, but there's snow across the road. Or, okay, there's more parcels. We're going to add a second truck. So you want to be able to dynamically route all this stuff in real time. Now, calculating all of that across basically millions of permutations of routes was something that they used to do overnight as this multi-hour process. But that doesn't work if you want to be able to dynamically add trucks onto the road on different routes on the day and utilize them fully straight away. So, they went and modeled that into a graph database of saying, specifically into Neo4j, of saying, okay, this postage center here, the relationship is there is a truck is going to drive from this one to that one and then this one to that one. So, then what you can do is you can say, okay, this parcel, it's here and it needs to be there. And you can pull those Mm -hmm. two nodes out. And you can put them into a query, and you can actually ask the graph database. It has various algorithms in it where you can say, give me the shortest path between these two, right? And you might put a, a weight or a cost on some of the, the links, right, based on, say, the, the distance or the, the average speed of that route or something like that. You'd put a cost on them relative to each other. But what was so cool about this is the way that the parcels actually get sorted is physically is they come in on this conveyor belt. And the uh, the barcode gets scanned on the top. And then a database needs to go and kick off and work out, OK, where am I routing this thing to? And the requirement that came out was something like it had to be answered within seven or eight milliseconds, or some really tiny specific number. Not like 10, but like eight, right? And the reason for that is, as the parcel comes along the conveyor belt, gets scanned, the database query kicks off, and then the parcel starts to drop in air. It's getting carried down by gravity and accelerating. And by the time it hits the ground, well, not quite the ground, but by the time it hits the bottom of this chute, the database has to have answered where that parcel's going so the little paddle can flip across and push it onto the right conveyor belt. So, the requirement is literally of performance is literally driven by gravity of you need to be able to answer this database query before this parcel hits the ground. Otherwise, I don't know where to send it.
1: Um, <laughs> Love it. And, and that's wow. just such
2: a really cool uh, real-world performance <laughs> requirement versus some... <laughs> I don't know, somebody in the business making up some arbitrary number, So, I just absolutely sure. love that I, story. Just
1: like the comment we had with the listener there about process controls. It's yeah. like, hey, when you're operating a factory, time matters, not optional. Yeah. You, know, you really have to compute stuff on time one way or the other.
2: Mm. You've got seven milliseconds, not eight.
1: <laughs> yes. But it's, you know the other side of this is... Most data storage methodologies, and I don't know the graph database are exception, as the amount of data grows, velocity declines. So, you know, how do you, in a relational database, I got, which, you know, I've spent a lot of time with, we got really good about carving off old data and getting it out of the way so that we could maintain speed month over month, year over year. How do you manage a graph database as it starts to grow?
2: The where you slow down with a graph database is in having what we call dense nodes. So if you have a node and you have a million relationships coming into it, which you can do, walking out from that node is an expensive operation because you have to follow a million relationships. And all of a sudden you've pulled in a million records basically of the nodes on the other end to then start filtering them down. And you're back in this environment of having multi-million row tables and stuff, right? Whereas if you have a appropriately, what we call a weighted, appropriately weighted graph of saying, okay, we're not going to have millions of properties on each node and we're not going to have millions of relationships on each node. It's just going to be nicely balanced, right? A balanced graph. We're going to have, you know, like, I don't know, 50 properties on a node and we'll have a couple of hundred relationships maybe and sort of sane numbers there. Then that stays really, really performant what we end up with is kind of cold spots in the graph. So, if we think back to that example of where we have podcasts as a node, and then we have the time graph in there as well of years that link to months that link to podcasts. If we got a, a, a node back there in I don't know, 1980 or something uh, that goes and points to a bunch of podcasts, and, and nobody's querying those podcasts anymore, and nobody's looking up 1980, well, that doesn't affect our real-time query performance of going and looking up podcasts in 2010. Because we find the 2010 node, and we find the 50 podcasts linked to that, and that's insanely fast. And we only dealt with 51 nodes and 50 relationships. And we didn't have to care about the fact that there's this other year node and these other podcast nodes all the way over there. So they end up as just this kind of cold spot that sits on disk, falls out of the cache, and, and nobody cares about it. So it kind of falls into storage as a constraint, but that's about it, really, right?
1: But, but that's pretty awesome that you know this remarkably – storage is cheap. It's impact on querying that matters. And this organization is tolerant to that. It won't impact performance.
2: Correct. But you, you need to. They're, they're, it's not the magical, we put some data in and we get instant querying right? It, it's thinking about how we're we going to balance our graph and our relationships appropriately. So if you just went in and you, you took a, a CSV file of podcasts and said, import each of these as nodes, and then said, find me all of them that are in 2010... And it had to go and query through looking at the dates and parsing them out. That's still going to be poor performance. It'll be worse than SQL because it's not going to be indexed on that as a column and and stuff like that. Um, But if you intelligently go, okay, we're going to want to be able to query by dates, you can add that in. And that's not an upfront thing of I need to work out my schema and plan it all out upfront. You can add all this stuff very easily in time and you can sort of, you can do those more expensive queries and then go, oh, these are getting expensive, okay, let's sort of, actually add time as a first-class concept into our data model if that's important to us. Um, But otherwise, no, you keep all that efficiency, which is great.
0: Hey, Richard, you know what time it is? Uh, It must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to traverse the graph of sanity until we find the note of stupid graph database jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, well. No, it's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who today's winner is, let's talk about the Telerik platform. This is the only modular platform that combines a rich set of UI tools with powerful cloud services to develop web, hybrid, and native apps. You can develop in the browser, on your desktop, or using Visual Studio using .NET, Java, HTML5, JavaScript, and PHP. Check it out at telerik.com slash platform. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Tim Cochran. Golf clap for Tim Cochran. Clappers. The clapper. Love the clappers. <laughs> I got a plastic clapper here, Tatham. It gives <laughs> me a lot of happiness. Uh, easily unused. Uh, it's, it's a living
2: We haven't heard your bad graph database joke yet. That was what you just promised me.
0: Uh, No, that was it. it? (laughs) He missed it. Hey, you weren't paying attention. Play that back. (laughs) Rewind.
2: I'll I'll give you a different one.
1: uh, You had had a worse bad bad graph joke. Well, let's hear it. This
2: is actually a it's a Mongo joke, but it's it's um it's fun in the context of graph databases. Of uh, so Neo4j meets acid, right? It's atomic, consistent, isolated, durable. Whereas a lot of these NoSQL solutions are base, basic availability, soft state, eventual consistency. So, my favorite one mm-hmm. that popped up around October last year was MongoDB raised 150 million dollars but failed to write the transaction to disk. <laughs> <laughs> that's <awesome. laughs>
0: now, that's a good
2: <laughs> that's
1: NoSQL good. joke. <laughs> Oh, my God. All
0: right. Well, anyway, uh, what we do here is during the show, we give away stuff to members of the fan club. If you don't know what that is, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and uh, we'd like to give you some stuff, too. Every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member. We've done it for two years now, and we'd like to ask our guest, Tatham... If you had 5000 to spend on technology right now, what would you buy?
2: I've gone completely overboard with insane amounts of data about all kinds of health information. And I think I've spent $5,000 on Wi-Fi scales and Fitbits and blood pressure cuffs and <laughs> GPS oh. watches and... Everything else, I literally cannot take a step without it being tracked by a 3D accelerometer and uploaded via ant to the internet. So oh, uh, I love I, it. I think <laughs> I've spent my. Well, $5, and then, I think there's
1: almost a whole geek out episode on instrumenting the human.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, so so we're not going there. Is what you're saying? You've already done that.
2: <laughs> I, I'm sure I could spend five thousand more, but um, it's starting to just get embarrassing. I The only way I knew my Wi-Fi was down the other week was. Um, like I got home, my laptop was working, and I was on the internet and everything. And uh, so I thought it was all working. But it turned out my laptop had failed over to a 4G connection. And the only way I knew that my home Wi-Fi was actually down was I stepped on my bathroom scales, and they told me no Wi-Fi connectivity. Um, which is just kind <laughs> of a,
0: Wi-Fi for you. Yeah.
2: Oh, that was a bad, bad sign <laughs> of the future. It's like, oh, wow. The <laughs> first thing I realized is my scales tell me.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, I would, I would not want to trust the, everything in my house to my Wi-Fi connection. That's for sure. Well, this is that whole Internet of Things thing coming, right?
1: Is that all this instrumentation is feeding through Wi-Fi back to to store all that data, which I I love building it in my house for years.
0: That'd be fine if the data stayed in my house. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great, actually. But
1: you know, the other side of it, you know,
0: you want to spend some money on physiological
1: instrumentation, you could get like a glucose meter embedded, just like the uh, the diabetics have. That's a few grand. There you go.
2: That's a that's a whole other metric I'm not tracking.
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> right. You, you don't know what your blood sugar is minute to minute? I'm, you slacker. I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's getting to the point. I think I need to build some sort of analysis cube to actually go and pull all my different – and like it's some sort of ETL process to pull all of these different data sources in and have kind of the uh, SSRS reports of the so, so what Tatham would that graph
0: today? look like, Tatham? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, back on topic. Um, what would that? They- <laughs> Yeah so you can actually go and record sorts of um those types of measurements in imagine you had a uh you basically have a time series and you'd link that to nodes which represent measurements that you'd go and link to what sensor gathered them and which person it was about so um yeah. my uh, my Wything scales they deal with multiple people so you stand on it and it works out who you are so you've got a measurement that links to a person to a sensor And then you'd have a permissions model on top of that if you can go and delegate access to different family members and doctors and and things like that. So that becomes a very easy graph to say you've logged in, what measurements do you have access to? Rather than saying Mm. what accounts do you have permissions to and then what sensors are on those accounts and then what measurements are there. You can just kind of Mm. trace through and go, okay, from your login, find all the measurements, go. Uh, And that just becomes like a, a simple two, three hop in the graph.
1: And I like this idea that you just build up sets of nodes almost like index sets to make it faster to grab certain things. Or when you bring in additional types of data, you can help organize that as well. It's very tolerant to change.
2: Sure. And and I don't want to paint the picture that you can't build indexes. So you you do use indexes for those kind of initial lookups of getting into the graph. So when we talk about... Finding the 2010 node. I don't want to have to search every node in the graph to find that, right? So one of the things that you've got is lightweight schema in Neo4j is you can put labels on nodes. So a label is it's kind of like a tag or a category. So that's how I say this is a podcast node is I put a label. It's a podcast, right? So then I can go to the graph and say find me all the podcast nodes, and it can find them really efficiently. So that's kind of an index already. But then what I can say is okay, I actually want for every podcast node i'm going to expect that there's a property called show id because this is what you like the three digit numbers that you need to use in urls and you do you need a, an id from the sense of not so much the data store but from a you actually need to publish that to the world and be able to refer to a show so i say okay i'm expecting there to be a show id property on all of the podcast nodes create a unique index on the podcast label against the show id property right so, now the the graph will actually start storing a, a traditional index for that. So, then when I go to the graph and say, find me podcast123, it just goes, bang, there it is, found it. So, you've got that nice. quick entry point to a node, and then you can go to your graph traversal. But you do need to have some way into it, all right? And that's where yeah. indexes still come into play.
1: You know what? We really should talk about what it takes for a .NET developer to use Neo4j. Sure, yeah, let's do that. Is there a server involved here, too? Like, what do I have to set up to get Neo4j operating?
2: So the most annoying thing about the naming, and I've told them this so many times, and they totally get it, is that little 4j on the end. It's the, the, t- right. the taint of Java. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: I smell Java somewhere. <laughs> it's around here.
2: But, it, but it's kind of like walking around saying, SQL Server for C++. And it's like, well... Right. Does anybody care what SQL Server is written in, really? It's just this shiny box that you install, and it works. Um, And and Neo4j is very similar to that. So uh, you've got a traditional server component. Uh, You can actually use it as an embedded in-process thing in Java and stuff like that. But for .NET, we just kind of ignore all that. So we have a traditional server component that goes and listens on a network port, and it talks over HTTP. Um, So there is an API, and there's there's a few different ways to talk to it. So there's a REST API that they built out, but that doesn't really make a huge amount of sense. It's kind of clunky in a a graph world um, because you don't have that explicit sort of more hierarchical type thing you'd get from a URI structure and and those roots. So the main way that we talk to it is using a language called Cypher. Cypher is Neo4j's query language. All Uh, right, what's all these Matrix
0: things all about, man? (laughs) What's with the Matrix references? We've got Neo
2: Neo fighting the evil tables, and we will win. So Uh, they are actually all Matrix references. And um, (laughs) I I already mentioned the Wachowski brothers earlier today, just in the context of a different movie in the sample data set. So Matrix comes up quite Uh a lot. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so we go and we use this cipher query language, which is kind of like SQL in that it's got some keywords and it's as in the, the language T SQL. Uh, it's got some keywords and it's text based. So mainly what we're doing is we send that over the wire and we get a, a blob of JSON that comes back that represents our result set for that. So from a, a .NET space, um, there's then a client driver called Neo4j Client on NuGet which uh, provides sort of C-sharp bindings on top of that. So it has a fluent interface to help you build Cypher queries and goes and compiles Lambda expressions down to where clauses and and stuff like that. We fire that across the wire and we get some JSON data back that we then deserialize into objects. So it's all pretty natural for a developer to use. Um, And the install process all has in Java embedded and everything. So you can mostly forget that Java exists on your machine.
0: Oh, that's always good.
2: Sleep easy at night, ignoring the fact that right. you have Java on your machine.
0: Well,
1: that's an, an interesting. You know, like there seems to almost be a drive to get rid of JVMs on, certainly on desktops these days.
2: Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm stabbing at it, but it's still a mature J, like VM environment, right? Um, There's a lot of stuff that runs on Java and it's quite hostable and uh, you also then get a whole bunch of opportunities of like Neo4j goes and exposes JMX monitoring endpoints so you can go and point a monitoring tool at it and it spins up. When I've done some performance work on it in the past, um, it was actually really cool. We were using New Relic on the .NET front end on our MVC site Uh, and then we also then picked up the New Relic um, jar file and we were just able to load that into the Neo4j process. So wow. we just modified the the service start entry in the registry. So when it went and called Java.exe with the JAR file, we said, oh, and load this one. So we went and loaded New Relic up. New Relic had a look at it and said, oh, I understand this embedded web server here that they're using. I recognize that it's a web server because it's some standard Java web server library. Um, so then automatically New Relic was able to understand each of our queries coming in because they all had a unique HTTP call. Um, and then under that, they... Uh, the, the way the Neo4j code actually works is they'll have various iterators and stuff that they go and wrap to go and execute queries is how they execute a query plan, right? So they'll take a mm-hmm. query and they'll compile into a query plan and then that represents some uh, structure of iterators wrapped around each other. So then what we ended up with was doing a, a call in MVC, in ASP.NET MVC that New Relic could see it on the outbound HTTP request because that went through the standard uh, system.NET stuff going out. Added the correlation ID, which then hit Neo4j, got recognized as a unique call there because it knew the web server, and then we could see all of the requests going all the way down through the iterators. So we actually had this end-to-end view where I could look at my my front-end web request and say, oh, the expensive part about that was I went and read this many nodes in off disk, and I spent the whole time in this like disk load because the cache wasn't warm in that area. Or I spent the whole time applying this really complex where filter. So I must be pulling in too many nodes there or something like that. So I had complete end-to-end traceability all the way through into the internals of Neo4j and how it was operating, which is actually cool.
1: Nice. No, it it speaks to this broader thinking about how we actually manage stuff. I, I get pushback from DBAs when we start talking about these other stores about how do I manage this? How do I administer it? How do I know it's working correctly and it's healthy? You know, the fact that tools like New Relic can step in and give us the truth about how it's actually operating, like, hell, that beats SQL Profiler.
2: Yeah. Um, how often do you inject your own profiler into the SQL process? <laughs> you don't.
1: <laughs> yeah, because tr- it's costly and dangerous, right? Like, this idea, and I'm a big believer in this these days, of real-time instrumentation. Don't tell me, show me the test results in the lab. Show me what's happening in production. And if you can't instrument in production, then we have a problem. Indeed. I'm a believer, man. I'm with you. And that's really exciting stuff to to recognize it all works together. And and New Relic actually comes from the Java world, so it doesn't surprise me. They've got some nice plays in the .NET space now as well. But, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that they they were able to work well with it. Actually, it does a little. That is pretty cool. i got to admit.
2: End-to-end traceability, correlation, wonderful.
1: Yep. So on the development side, what does it look like for a .NET developer actually communicating with Neo4j? Am I, am I, obviously, I'm not writing SQL. I'm just guessing.
2: No, so Cypher is actually quite a funny language. Um, if, you, if you can visualize, we have, say we've got a whiteboard in front of us, right? And we write Tom yep. Hanks up. And then we write the matrix up. And we draw an arrow from Tom Hanks to the matrix. And on that arrow, we write acted in right? That's two nodes and one relationship. Tom Hanks acted in the matrix. Now, if I want to go and then query, I'm going to say, uh, and, and then we put a label on them. We say Tom Hanks is an actor and the matrix is a movie. Now, if I wanted to go and let's imagine that data already exists in our graph database, but I want to query on that and say, find all the movies that Tom Hanks acted in. So, I have an actor, an outbound relationship, and then a movie. So if we take that diagram that's on the whiteboard and we start to kind of remove some fidelity, and just we have a circle which is the fir- which is Tom Hanks as the actor, and then we have an arrow that goes to another circle which is the movie node, right? So that's an actor outbound arrow movie. The way we actually write that in Cypher is we fall back to good old ASCII art. So what I'm going to write is literally ah. match. So I want to match a pattern in the graph. Capital keywords, uh, capitals keyword match space. Actor, dash, dash, greater than symbol, movie. So actor, arrow, to a movie. So match, actor, dash, dash, greater than movie, where actor.name equals Tom Hanks. right? Now that's going to go and find the Tom Hanks node, the movies. Well, it's going to find, uh, it's going to do what's called pin the Tom Hanks node. So it'll see, okay, yeah, we've got a where clause here. So find the actor node where the name is Tom Hanks, maybe use an index and then match this pattern that goes out. So now we've got the actor node and the movies and the relationships, and it's all in memory. And then the last line of our query is return movie. Now that's going to return the set of movies. So what we actually get out is a tabular result set, right? We get like columns of stuff. So if if we said return actor.name, movie.title, we'd have a table that has two columns and where one of those columns is actor name, and one column is movie title, and then we'd have a row for e- each kind of permutation. So that's the type of data we'd then pull back into our .NET world. So we don't actually represent the graph structure itself in .NET. We get right. right. a tabular structure that represents our query result, which is quite natural to work with. So for a .NET developer, we then would have classes that go and represent what does a person node look like to us and what does a movie node look like to us, so, the movie node is just going to be a simple POCO plain old class object with a, a, a title string property on it and maybe a length and, and a release year and, and stuff like that. And then we're going to go and deserialize into that. So, the actual c I'd write would be something like graphclient.cypher.match. So, there's a, a fluent interface. So, I've got a method there, .match. Put in my match text as ASCII art, .where. And then the, the .NET client, because we have this concept of types in .NET that we can use, even though we have this loose schema in Neo4j where we can just kind of right. property value pairs, we can use that type information to our advantage. So I can say dot .Where of Person and use my my Person class, and then use a lambda expression actor um, actor lambda actor .Name equals Tom Hanks. So that in the .NET client, we'll then go and compile that down to the proper kind of cipher text. Dot .return um, movie as movie, the class, dot .results. And at this point, we have an I enumerable of, ob- of movie objects, right? And as soon as we hit that, that'll go after the database and, and execute. So, that becomes a like a, a three-line piece of C Sharp that says, I, I'm expecting this kind of graph structure, and here it is in ASCII art. So, from a developer documentation perspective, you can see exactly what the structure looks like because you've drawn it in ASCII art. <laughs> Uh, a, a filter expression, and then give me a list of movies back.
1: Done. Right. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. No. And and almost sequelish Like the ex- everyone's going to recognize those expressions. That's not scary at
0: all. Sure.
2: No. So the, the where clause and return, and you know, <clears> you've <throat> also got create and set to set properties and stuff like that. Um, that's all very sequel like, and it, it feels very natural. The the type of syntax of the language of you write sort of one clause per line and you put a keyword in caps at the start as a convention and some keyword space something that's all very sql like the the match concept is a little bit different in that we go and draw out ascii art so if i wanted to say find movies where somebody both acted in it and directed the movie i might have actor an outbound arrow movie and then an inbound arrow to that movie and then a director and then say where actor equals director right so I'll say actor dash dash greater than movie less than dash dash director. So you can see there on the, on the, if you draw that out on the board and you had like um, uh, pop culture failure here, somebody who'd both acted and directed in a movie, you have them on the board and you draw two arrows down to the movie. That's essentially what you've just drawn out in your match clause again, right? You see, simply yeah, drawing out right. arrows.
0: Wow, man. This is uh, quite awesome. It's
1: really interesting, really interesting way to think about the problem, so, and, but, and not that foreign from what we're already doing. Well,
2: the best part is I get paid to sit around and write ASCII art at consulting rates. It's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you said it wasn't scary. I can think of some ASCII art that's been plenty scary. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, say just say XPath and watch everybody cringe. <laughs>
2: yeah, true. But it, it is amazing yeah. how simple it is. Like, I'll go and um, deliver sort of training workshops on it, and. We start off with a whiteboard, and we draw something up, and then I just sort of take some of the fidelity away. And I'm like, well, what if we rub this little bit out, and now we've just got a circle and an arrow? And what if I turn that circle into two parentheses and just put an identifier in the middle? And what if I turn the arrow into just two dashes and a greater than symbol? And then I put the word match on the front. Now we've got a query. Okay, everyone type that in. Hit enter. Oh, look, we got some data. Um, which is just amazing being able to do that versus imagine right. what T-SQL 101 is like in a, uh, mm. if you're not familiar with SQL at all kind of like okay and I have oh, to get you,
1: a type you, you start writing the expression from the middle.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> you know that's the evil part, right? Is that it it is not a not, you you can't start at the beginning. You have to start in the middle. What tables are we going to get? Right. How are we going to connect them together? How are we going to filter them? Then what do we want from them?
2: And in every one of those queries, you go and explain that how we're going to get, how we're going to connect them. It's not just.
1: Yeah. Okay. And, you, and you keep looking over to diagram, trying to figure out where stuff is and yeah. how it's associated. Like you, you always need to be aware of the plumbing of your relational database, which is what the joint constructs are and where, where things are organized, and so forth. Like it's a, it's a not a trivial thing to keep in your head,
2: which is one of the things that um, I, didn't feel so comfortable with initially, and, and I get a lot of questions about, is people sit there and they're like, how do I, I know the, the schema or the structure of my data in my graph database?
1: Um, right. Because I'm so used to needing to know that, having it up on the wall on a piece of paper.
2: <laughs> right. Whereas if we, we have sort of this important schema in the sense of saying... I know that if I go to a podcast, it's going to have a property called show ID, right? We're not going to call it like podcast ID somewhere else or something. I need to know that that property is called that, and I need to know it's a number. Now, Neo4j doesn't really care about that too much. You can now, in Neo4j 2, you can say, okay, create a unique index on this property, so therefore it has to exist based on that label as well. Um, But otherwise, it doesn't really care. It's just key value pairs on a node and also key values on a relationship, right? They have data themselves on the relationship. But in the .NET world, we have a class that represents that. Public class, podcast, publics, int, show ID, right? So that's kind of our first Mm. piece of schema, which then becomes version controlled. And I can then refactor parts of my schema or go and, not so much refactor, but I can go and say find usages, just find usage on the property and I've got that in my code, uh, but then the relationships between that become reasonably soft. And beyond that, it, there's so much flexibility there. I, I don't need to go and actually know, like, okay, to get from here to here, I have to know about that join table. I just go and query the database and go, I'm over here and there's some data over there and I want to know what links them. Tell me. And it does, right? So that whole um, concept of having to have the big database model in front of you uh, starts to to disappear and... Um, I've done several Neo4j projects now, all the way through to production. And we're sort of by the, the end of it, we don't even have database diagrams, really. Um, they just don't form a part of our workflow, which uh, as soon as right. you go and talk to that traditional DBA who's wondering, how do I manage this thing? And they're like, what's the database right, sure. diagram? I'm like, I don't know. They'll look at yeah. the database.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how do you sell well, this to a DBA?
2: Uh, well, one of the things with NoSQL is that um, as we start to think intelligently about what is the data I've got, what am I going to do with it, and how am I going to store it, a lot of those things are becoming more application concepts, I think, whereas we used to sit there and go, okay, the like, file new project, add SQL, add jQuery, um, what am I building, right? Right, right? Now we sort of go, file new project, what am I building? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, we need to persist some state. Where are we going to put that? Oh, we might put that in some form of blob storage or we might put that over here in a document DB. Or or So I
0: I said, how do you sell this to a DBA? And you say, we don't need a DBA.
2: Well, (laughs) it's starting to push up into an engineering task of rather than us just going, as as a set of developers going, I'm just going to dump this data over here and it's all going to be fine and magic. It's now about actually getting back a little bit and, and thinking about, how is this going to end up on disk, right? What is going to be the efficient way to do it? So part of that operational design is moving back up into the application layer, kind of almost like your DevOpsy type thing of caring about the ops is caring about the storage and how it's going to work. So this...
1: And how it's backed up and, you know, how how it's secured and whether it's auditable, like those are the... More and more, it's like DBA's job is not to figure out if, if what indexes are on what tables and what user account exists. It's that overall responsibility for well, how is the integrity of the data for my organization.
2: Right. So as we move that kind of data integrity question into the app space, because the app is now increasingly um, a polyglot type environment of we have data in different places and it needs to know how to connect them and, and where, uh, how to relate all that information across data sources and whatnot then the actual sort of maintenance of the database becomes really a, an operations task, which moves it more into that ops category. Um, and we start to lose some of that traditional DBA role uh, as they move to ops or engineering uh, in my experience.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's an interesting conversation. I'm being slowly drawn into with what the modern DBA starts to really look like.
2: Yep.
0: All right, guys. Well, Tathan, what's uh, next for you? What's in your inbox?
2: Uh, Next for me. That's an excellent question. uh, I'm trying to find a conference at the moment, and this is surprisingly hard, where I can back it up with some skiing in the Northern Hemisphere. So I'm looking for recommendations on what's next, really. I need conferences located near uh, ski resorts. That is such a hard question to answer.
0: Are you in an aviary?
2: Uh, No, but it is dawn here and the birds are waking up.
1: Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. It's uh, it's Australia. All hell breaks loose. Yeah. Um, yeah, because generally speaking, when it's ski season, it's not conference season. We need mm-hmm. to fix
2: that, guys. We
1: need to fix that.
0: <laughs> I mean, the, the coldest place that I've ever, you know, had been in a conference is Codemash, but I don't know how much skiing there is in, in Ohio. There's no hills. <laughs> yeah.
2: Cross-country doesn't work. No. There you go. But uh, All
0: right, Tatham, well, we'll catch up with you somewhere, I'm sure. Excellent. Maybe in uh, Norway or... Or one of those places.
2: One of those first world problems of which country will we see each other in next. That's but thanks great. to the internet, you're always there.
0: Excellent. Thanks again. This is great.
2: Good to talk to you. All
0: right. And we'll see you next time on .Net Rocks.